You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Joining us now, you've probably seen him on TV on several different occasions, whether it's CBS, Fox News, NBC, CNN. You have seen him defend everything for veterans as he is the founder of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans Association, IAVA, as it's more commonly known. Before that happened, he was a soldier in the United States Army fighting on the front lines in Iraq. It is Paul P.J. Rykoff joining us on the Hazard Ground podcast. Paul, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, man. Great to finally be with you, and congratulations on the success of the show. Thank you. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, We always start out by asking the same question to everybody. How did you end up in the military? Why did you sign up? Uh, you know, it was something that was always kind of percolating in my mind. And, and the way I describe it is, is if you've got that call to service, it's kind of an, an itch that you got to scratch. And, and if you don't do that or you don't answer that call, uh, you'll probably kick yourself for, for the rest of your life. So uh, my grandfather was drafted in World War II. He had immigrated to this country from Europe and uh, was drafted when he was living in the Bronx. And then a generation later, my father was drafted to Vietnam in the exact same neighborhood. And when I uh, went to college and played football and graduated, I, I felt like I had an obligation to serve. Um, I didn't want to just go work in a bank or, or behind some desk. And This was before 9-11. It was 1998 was when I graduated college. So when, when I left you know, a four-year degree and enlisted, a lot of folks didn't really get it. Um, I don't think there was the same understanding of, of service that there is now in the post-9-11 environment. But you know, I wanted to give back. I wanted to do my part. I felt like if I didn't serve in some way, I'd be – kind of freeloading as a citizen. Uh, a lot of opportunities afforded to me, and, and I wanted to give something back to the country that I loved and, and that my family loved. So I came from a military family in the old school sense, and that, you know, we were middle class, lower middle class, and everybody got drafted. So, you know, all my uh, uncles went in, in the service in World War II, and everybody's grandfather went. So for me, it was really something I, I had to do. Uh, I also wanted, you know, the excitement. I wanted to you know, jump out of airplanes and blow stuff up. I wanted to, to test my mettle, uh, and I wanted real leadership training that I felt like I couldn't get in the civilian world because I'd grown up understanding how different it was. So, um, you know, that's a long-winded answer, but, but that's why I joined. Well, it's interesting because you had a bachelor's degree and you enlisted. Now, typically, most people who get a college degree go right to becoming an officer or go to, you know, some commissioning program, but why did you decide to enlist as opposed to the officer route? Well, my grandfather was enlisted, and my father was enlisted, um, and and I felt like you know I, I might want to become an officer one day, and if I did, I had to understand the enlisted man and woman's perspective. So you know, I, I didn't want a shortcut. I kind of want to really start at the bottom and understand what it's like to be you know an E1 uh, behind a machine gun or standing guard or doing whatever it is that you've got to do. And so um, it was also about breaking myself down. I mean, I went to a I was fortunate enough to go to a really good school in, in Massachusetts, and it was one of those places where people think that the sun shines out of their ass, and I wanted to go somewhere that really broke me down, didn't care where you went to school, and really tested me and, and really tested my character and, and, and who I was as a person. So, um, you know, I was in there with guys who had GEDs and uh, maybe a couple other college grads, but there weren't too many of them, um, and I think it was the right path for me. Eventually, I went to OCS and got my commission. And I felt like I was a better officer because I understood the, the perspective of, of the enlisted guys. You know, and just a quick anecdote story. When you just spoke about 
you know, getting a job and, and going into the service was different prior to 9-11. I remember vividly when I was a senior in college, and it was in 1999, now that I date myself, but, uh, you know, there were job fairs going on everywhere. And I did ROTC for all four years, and I knew I was getting a commission and going right into the military. And I remember my classmates asked me, you going to the job fair? And I'm like, no. And they're like, why not? I go, because I got to go in the military. And they looked me dead in the eye and said, why don't you just get a real job? And it was, I mean, yeah. it's a little bit ironic yeah. that two years later, how real our job became, but that's what was thought of of yeah. serving back then. Yeah. I mean, I, when I got out of um, basic training in AIT and I went into the reserves and I was a drilling reservist um, before 9-11 and I worked at a, a bank on Wall Street and, and I'd go to drill on weekends. And, and I remember a boss saying to me like, what do you guys actually do? Do you really do anything? They thought we just sat in the woods and, and drank beer. They didn't understand that we were actually <laughs> training for war. Um, and then, you know, 9-11 happened. My unit was actually activated. I, I volunteered to be a part of the National Guard downtown. And I saw some of those same people I worked on Wall Street with. And then they got it. You know, there was that moment where they saw me in BDUs and they said, holy cow, like, we didn't get it. You know, it's that presto change moment that National Guards and Reservists uh, have often experienced where you see your civilian colleagues uh, and you're in uniform and they don't recognize you. It's like putting on a cape or, you know, going, going into a different uh, mode. And I think that that was you know, a moment where everybody realized everything changed. You know, nobody even understood the National Guard. They didn't understand the reserves. They didn't really understand the military. So when I was, you know, downtown around 9-11, I remember a lady said to me, you know, awesome to have you guys here. It's great to have you here. You know, she thought we were the 82nd Airborne that got dropped in. And I said, lady, I live on 24th Street. We're here. We're everywhere. We're, we're, we're all around you. Um, and, and I think that was a real opportunity for us to answer the call. And so many, you know, millions of men and women came out of the shadows and, and, and answered the call. So I think things have definitely changed and I think for the better. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it was, it was how it worked out for me. And you don't always choose when your wars come, um, but you got to be ready for whatever happens. Well, let's stay there for a minute because 9-11, you know, you were in your apartment in Manhattan, as you just mentioned, where you were living and you're watching this whole thing unfold. Take me through the events that morning and kind of the emotions as all this was happening, what the thoughts in your mind were. You know, it, it was a trip, and I, I wrote about it in my book because I think it was really, you know, something I had to process over time, just the flood of, of, of uh, inputs and, and processing the emotion of it all. I mean, you know, you never think when you go into basic training that your first, essentially your first activation, your active-duty deployment is going to be in downtown Manhattan. It's just, you know, at that time we were thinking maybe it'll be, you know, in Europe somewhere, in the Balkans, uh, the Middle East was always on everybody's radar. But, you know, you didn't think that you'd be responding to something in lower Manhattan, you know, right near Wall Street. So it was really, you know, surreal. Um, I, I always described that moment when I saw everybody looking up at the towers. If I try to describe it, it's kind of like a Godzilla movie where, like, everybody looks up and goes, oh, my God, here comes Godzilla. I can't believe he's really coming. They kind of freeze. And to see... You know, thousands of people with that look of awe and shock and horror on their faces, something I'll never forget. So um, it got real. It got real real fast for all of us and, and for cops and firemen and EMTs. And I, I've always said that, you know, that was really one of our country's darkest, day, darkest days, but also an inspired day. I saw people from all walks of life banding together to dig people out by hand and pass around food and that spirit of unity. It's like nothing I've ever seen since and may never see again. Everybody got together. It didn't matter where you were from just to respond and help. Um, so it was a terrible, terrible time, but it was also an inspiring time. And, and I try to do my best, um, you know, working with other 9-11 uh, first responders to try to tell the stories of heroism. And I think the memorial is an important part of that 
Uh, the Tribute Center down by Ground Zero is also an important part of that. People need to understand that they were moments of beauty and heroism um, and, and tremendous sacrifice. And those personal stories, not just of the folks who died, but the folks who stepped up, um, I think it needs to be told. It needs to be told to our kids and, and our grandkids so that we never forget. In all that chaos that was going on and while you were there helping and in the days after, was there a seminal moment for you, a crystallizing moment where, I mean, obviously you knew war was coming. You know, you've, you've already put on a uniform. You, you, you know what your mindset is. I think we all who are wearing a uniform at that point in time are wondering, okay, when are we going? Where are we going? How quick are we getting there? But was there something that went off inside of you that said, okay, now I've got to change my focus in life. I'm a guardsman. I'm a reservist. Now I need to go and be on the front lines. Was there a moment like that? I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, I would love to tell you there was, but I think it was just kind of like, you know, I hate to overuse sports analogies, but you train and, and when your number gets called, you go. And you don't know when that number is going to get called. And even when that happened, we didn't know what was next, right? We didn't know if there was right. going to be another attack. We didn't know if we were going to Afghanistan or where we were going. I volunteered to go to Afghanistan. I didn't get called to go there, but I eventually got called to go to Iraq. So there was a lot of uncertainty. You know, nobody knew at that time who the hit had come from, you know, who we'd be hitting back, if anyone. Um, and, and I think that the big surprise to me, in a good way, is I honestly, if you would have asked me that night, I would have thought that that, that, that that kind of environment would have become the new normal. Now we worry about ISIS attacks on domestic soil. I think most of us who were there on 9-11 thought that that was going to happen on 9-12 and on 9-13, and there would be a new normal where domestic attacks, even if they were small attacks, would be regular. It would feel more like, you know, Israel or somewhere else where the population becomes accustomed to having regular attacks on their homeland. So I think it's a testament to, you know, our national defense establishment, to, you know, NYPD and so many other citywide uh, first responders that we didn't have that happen. You know, it's been a few years later and we definitely are always under a constant threat, but we're not constantly getting hit. And I think we'll never know how many hits have been avoided or blocked or diverted. Um, because of the heroism of, of so many of these intelligence and first responder and military folks that are working every night when we're sleeping in our beds. So um, it's hard to believe it's been this many years since 9-11, especially because I live just a couple blocks away now and never thought I'd move down here with my family to live. But if you ever come to lower Manhattan and you see how the, the area has been transformed, it's been reborn. And, and I think it's a really inspiring example of how our country can bounce back and how we can have a brighter future and you know, turn something terrible into something positive. So you were volunteered to go to Afghanistan. That doesn't happen. How do you end up in Iraq? Give me that story. Um, you know, a lot of us in New York, especially, I think in the tri-state area, were probably among the first to sign up and say, send me, right? We yep. had friends who, you know, worked downtown and, and who were hurt and killed. And so, we, you know, we wanted to be first in line. Um, you know, my National Guard unit was waiting for their call. In the meantime, they took a couple of augmentees to go down to round out a National Guard unit as the third ID. So me, uh, a guy who was a, a, an NYPD a cop, uh, and another uh, young lieutenant, three lieutenants got sent down to join up with a unit that was going overseas. At that time, we didn't even know if we were going to come down through Turkey or where we were going to go, but we, we knew we were going to be part of what would inevitably be the invasion. Um, so ended up down there and uh, was really part of the first wave of OIF-1 and then into OIF-2, um, mostly in, in central Baghdad, uh, for about the, the first year of the war. Take me through the initial invasion portion of the whole thing. I mean, was there ever a moment, and I asked this to a lot of guys who were on the initial invasion, because there is that gung-ho feeling like, yes, let's go do this. You know, pick me, send me, I'll go. 
But sometimes when you get into battle, you're like, what did I just get myself into? Like, was there ever a moment when you're going through the invasion going, eh, maybe maybe I, I, I got over my skis a little bit? Yeah, I mean, we were we were part of the kind of first follow-on forces. So Baghdad was pretty much secure by the time we got there. Okay. And we came in and, and were light infantry. And I think, again, again, like nobody knew what was going to happen. I think that the overwhelming feeling, you know, you, you, if you've been in the military, you get it, is that, that we thought it was going to be over quick. That's what we were told was going to happen. And, and as, you know, a couple of us from New York went and deployed, I remember other folks saying, like, oh, man, we're not going to get our shot. It's going to be over you know, good luck to you guys. We hope to see you. Not knowing that they were going to deploy a year later, and then three years later after that, and then three years later after that. I mean, in hindsight, we now know what the op tempo is going to be like for the next decade. But you know, we thought we'd be home by the summer. Um, so you know, I think it became this accordion effect that we all have now gotten used to, um, especially in the first couple of years of the war about extended orders, um, you know, rotations of units. Um, and, and really an op-tempo that we had never experienced before. And, and many of us, I think, in many of the systems, whether it was equipment or Humvees, you know, just weren't ready for. So I think those first couple of years were, were especially chaotic um, before we got into a real rhythm from the Department of Defense and we planned for the long haul. And I think there was, there was a lot of, you know, ingenuity happening. Every unit was trying to figure things out and make stuff happen as best you could with limited resources and changing guidance. I mean, we all know the stories of, National Guard units that were there for 20 months straight, extended multiple times. I think that, that lack of certainty, um, especially for our families, was, was probably the, the toughest part of it all. What stands out to you the most about your actual experience on the ground in Iraq? I mean, you know, whether it's a combat thing or just the camaraderie with the soldiers, what, what do you leave there with? I think looking back, it's just you, you never know you know how lucky you are until you get home in one piece. And you know we had a, a small unit, you know, and, and infantry platoon, you know, 38 guys. And, uh, you know, now as I look back, you know, I'm just lucky that we all got home in one piece. I mean, uh, we had some folks who were wounded and, and, but my platoon, thank God, all came home alive. And I think, you know, at that time we thought, you know, you know, okay, we made it. We didn't realize how, how lucky we were. Um, and, and sure you could chalk it up to the, the toughness or the ingenuity of, of our team. Um, but you know, if you've been in combat, you know, some of it's just the roll of the dice. Uh, where you are at the time when mm-hmm. something happens or doesn't happen. So when I look back at it, I'm just grateful. Uh, I'm grateful for the for the sacrifices that my guys made. Um, you know, I think all across the military, you've got some folks who are really exceptional, and especially those first couple of waves of National Guardsmen and Reservists. Most of them volunteered. Like, they signed up. They didn't know, you know, if they were going to be back for a third or fourth time, but they said, send me. And then over time, they started to deploy people. So I think and those first couple waves, you know, were really courageous. They were innovative. You know, the supply chains weren't flowing smoothly. So they had to really get entrepreneurial, um, whether it was trying to work vehicles or medical supplies or working with the local population. Looking back on it, it was a real time of, of innovation. And I think that's what I see as the potential for our generation of veterans. They are the innovation generation. They can make something happen with limited guidance, limited resources, and high pressure. And that served us well in combat, and I think it's going to serve us well at home, whether you're you know, running a podcast or you're running for Congress. I think this generation of men and women are exceptional. Uh, and, and I saw the, you know, the, the first signs of that uh, during my deployment, and I think it's panned out over time. There's one thing I want to highlight because it comes up often on the podcast that you mentioned as far as you talk about the luck and the gratefulness you have of coming home safe in one piece and all the same thing for all the guys in your unit. Uh, we echo this sentiment repeatedly. Combat is 
is unforgiving, um, and, and there's a lot of luck involved. There's a hell of a lot of training and a lot of practice and rehearsals and things that go into it, and that's part of the a big part of the reason why we're successful and why guys survive. But because somebody gets hurt or killed doesn't mean they necessarily did something wrong, and because you came out right. okay doesn't necessarily mean you did something right. Combat is just yeah. the most unpredictable thing on the face of the of the planet, and it's just so hard sometimes to figure out. And you mentioned the luck and the grace of the whole thing, and a lot of us who come home and are, are relatively unscathed or completely unscathed feel that same way. I think that's a totally normal and, and uh, viable thing to, to think and feel given everything that we go through. Let me ask you this much real quick, Paul. When you think back to, comparatively speaking, what you did at Ground Zero in the days after 9-11 uh, and versus what you did in combat in Iraq, which of the two was kind of physically and emotionally tougher for you? Yeah, I've, I've, I've thought about this a lot. I think Ground Zero was hard because you don't think about digging up civilians in Manhattan, yeah. right? Like yeah. you, you train for you train for patching up your buddies if they get shot by the enemy. You train for you know taking prisoners if you you know come across the objective. You train for you know so many different variables from mortars to IEDs when you're in combat. You're not trained to you know dig through a gigantic building where planes just rammed into it and nobody knows what the hell is going to happen. I mean, that was just, I think emotionally, um, much more shocking. And I think as I reflect on the, the trauma that I've been exposed to and the carnage that I've been exposed to for me, even in my own transition, now that I've had time to look back, I think that was harder for me, um, because they were all civilians and they didn't sign up for this combat. It was totally unexpected. You couldn't prepare for it. So I think emotionally, uh, even physically, um, it, it, it was it was totally different, and I'd hate to try to compare them, but um, but it was an exceptionally unique experience that I think you know folks who were there understand, and there's a real com- uh, camaraderie and, and kinship among the folks that were there, and especially you know the firefighters and EMTs that were there for a lot longer. You know, some of them were there for even years, going through that grind. Um, that was that was really unique and really traumatic, and especially because some folks went home and slept in the bed at night. So you're down at ground zero, you cross that line, and then you're sleeping in your apartment next to your kids. That's a twisted up kind of mental thing to try to process. Yeah, I mean, even as you say it now, I wonder how, how they did that. I mean, I, we all hugged our loved ones a little bit tighter that day. Uh, but to be able to, to, to leave that scene and what you saw there and what you had to go through again, I think, like you said, you're not prepared to see a guy in a business suit. Because the, the environment yeah, doesn't yeah. call for it. Um, yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, during that time, you know, I would try to cycle back and get a shower and do different things. And, you know, there was a moment where, like, Canal Street was kind of the LD. And then they moved it up, I think, to, like, 14th Street. You would literally cross through that, and the rest of the city was living life uninterrupted. So I would walk in with my BDUs, you know, covered in this soot from downtown. You know, you got a face mask on, you just dealt with this carnage, and then there's, you know, some people chilling out, having brunch and martinis. And that just that, that kind of that juxtaposition, uh, which I think is kind of a great thing that New York can still be that resilient and America can be that resilient. But from an emotional, uh, psychological standpoint, that, that's, that's some twisted stuff. And it's hard to process. It feels like you're walking in a, in a movie scene. Let me ask you kind of a loaded question about, you know, the days after 9-11 and, and what you saw and what you went through. When you think back to it, was anything stood out to you that went wrong that we didn't do right? Oh, shit. Yeah, so much. I mean, <laughs> I, could, I could go on. And I think the biggest thing for me that's always been kind of the, the clarion um, challenge is we missed an opportunity to galvanize the country. 
And, and you know, I've been critical of, of President Bush and President Obama and a lot of folks. I think in particular, I think that the president and the country and the Congress missed an opportunity to get everybody involved. So here we are, you know, over a decade later, and, and most folks, you know, haven't had any kind of a personal sacrifice. They haven't been asked to serve even, you know, in the Peace Corps or at a local community group. Um, taxes haven't gone up. And, you know, last week we're losing special operators in Somalia that nobody really knows about. So I feel like it created an unprecedented disconnect in the population um, that America's never really had before. You know, it was that moment where our military went to war and a lot of folks went to the mall. And I think that was a tremendous mistake. I think it was a missed opportunity um, to really put our country on an appropriate war footing, especially now in retrospect, we knew we were going to be in a forever war. So now as we're, you know, literally at war all around the world, um, our military is at war, but our country is still living life uninterrupted. And I think that you can make the argument that our professional military is, is better than ever before, and that's true, and, and they are exceptional in their performance. Um, and, and that's to be celebrated, but the disconnect from the, cent- from the general population has never been higher. And I think that's, you know, it's good for our military to be the kind of high-performing machine warrior class that it is, but it's bad for our country that it's such a small number of people who continue to go over and over again. Well said. Honestly, I mean, I, I agree wholeheartedly, and I, I think we did miss a golden opportunity to really um... – put ourselves on a, on a robust footing and, and it's too late to go back now. Uh, how does your military career end the military portion of it? Um, well, man, nowadays, who knows, right? It may never end. We, we may all be hooking up in Korea at some point in the next couple of years. <laughs> um, and right. I mean, I, so I, I got home in, in 2004 and transitioned in the national guard. And then I stayed in the national guard uh, for a couple of years and, and kept drilling. And, and then I got out. Um, and I felt like I had, you know, done my time and also IABA was, was ramping up and, um, it was tough to do both. Uh, I think now you've got some folks who are able to kind of do the service and still, um, be in the guard and reserve. But at that time it was, it was a little tricky and it was tough on me and my family. So it was a good time to separate the two and go full bore into, into veterans advocacy. Um, but you know, I was in the IRR for a while. Um, and, and again, who knows, right? As the balloon goes up, maybe they call everybody back. Yeah, and for those listening, the IIR is just the inactive ready reserves. It's basically a list of people uh, who have military service who are still kind of legally connected to the military, but they don't ask them to drill, they don't ask them to do anything, but you can be called up if the you-know-what hits the fan. All right, so you mentioned IAVA, and as you were winding down your military career, give me the impetus. How does this whole thing come about that we need this organization? And, and let me start out by saying, just as a, a kind of PSA, yeah, I signed up for IAV years ago when I found out what it was right after I got back from my second deployment in 2011. And ever since then, I've been closely following everything that this organization does. And if you're a veteran or you know a veteran who hasn't signed up, go to the website and sign up just because it's worth it to stay in the loop, if anything, to know what's going on with veterans and the issues that we're facing and what's being fought for us by guys like you. Now that my PSA is over, kind of give me the, uh, the initial birth, if you will, of IAVA and how it got started. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, 2004, and it really started with my platoon. Um, like anybody who's been overseas, you kind of have like a phone tree or, you know, crowdsourcing when, when you're trying to help each other out, right? Like somebody might be going through a divorce or somebody's trying to figure out how to get a job in a new town or, you know, you have somebody who's recuperating at Walter Reed. Um, and it really started with, with my platoon and our company just kind of crowdsourcing challenges. Um, fast forward, you know, we had a MySpace page. Uh, a pretty flat website that was really a message board and kind of web 
1.0 back in 2004, pre-Facebook, uh, where vets could connect online. And it was sharing stories, it was sharing resources, it was looking out for each other. And what we didn't realize at the time that we now realize, it was, it was the birth of the virtual veterans hall. And, you know, the old days you had bricks and mortar, and you still have them, BFW halls and Legion halls. Um, but, you know, those are, are more and more an obsolete model for a generation that lives and, and breathes and, and functions online first. So we, we took that impetus to, to feel the need to connect uh, and try to put the tools in place to connect, unite, and empower uh, a, a new generation. Uh, and, and advocacy has always been our focal point, and that's about taking all those voices and synthesizing it and, and sharing that with leadership and trying to, to create positive change, whether that's creating the GI Bill in 2008, uh, trying to reform the VA now, working on suicide, employment. You know, every year IAVA reaches out to our national membership, which is the, the, the deepest and, and most connected uh, network of post-9-11 vets, to say, hey, what, what are you all experiencing? Uh, and, and what are the issues you and your families think are most important? And what are your suggested solutions? And how can we all, you know, rally together to, to make something happen? At the same time, uh, on a very basic level, it's that social connection, it's that unity, it's that network that uh, is the evolution of the veteran service organizations. Every generation has a voice, and IVA is the voice for this generation, just like the Vietnam veterans of America were uh, for for the, you know the last generation. So. Um, that's really the core of it. And then we evolved also to recognize that we didn't have the expertise internally to have kind of a safety net. So I would get phone calls or texts or Facebook messages from guys or gals who were homeless, who were you know struggling with mental health issues. And at one point, it just got to be too much. I was really our first caseworker. I wasn't qualified to do it. So we, we got to create a program here to create a safety net. So we created uh, the Rapid Response Referral Program. Uh, which is now close to uh, over 7,000 clients over the last couple of years. Uh, you can reach out to them 24 hours a day, and they'll get back to you usually within a day's notice um, online or by phone, text, whatever works for you. Uh, and we've got master's level social workers who are also veterans or highly culturally competent themselves, and they can help you figure out your GI Bill or help you figure out uh, how to get settled into housing if you're in a new place or if you need legal support. It's really um, like a 311 or, or a master customer service component for, you know, this transitioning network of veterans. So that's a long explanation, but we've really, you know, taken that idea of having a couple of vets from a platoon looking out for each other uh, and, and trying to help each other succeed to the national level. And, and that's where we are now. We're a nonprofit. Uh, we don't charge dues. So signing up is free. We think you paid your dues in Iraq and Afghanistan, so we're not going to nickel and dime you. But we encourage folks to make donations if they can and to come out to events that we do nationwide. And some of the events are, are fantastic. Uh, just like locally, again, you're in all 50 states. So wherever you are across the country, you have an opportunity to interact with other vets who are part of IAVA and share your stories and things of that nature. Did you think when you first started IAVA, it could grow as quickly and as big as it did? No way. No, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I had no interest or background in, in doing nonprofit work. I mean, I, I, you know, worked in finance, I coached football, I was in the army. This was new to me and it's not what I would have, uh, you know, predicted I, I would be doing, but um, it, it's where my passion lied. And, and we got a great team from the outset and um, continued to have a great team over, over the last decade. Um, so, you know, it's really, I think, a testament to the potential of our generation. One of the things we believed all along from the very beginning is that, you know, vets are not a charity, they're an investment. And if you make that case to the to world and to other vets, 
it's going to pay off in, in tremendous ways. So not looking at us as victims or villains or broken or damaged, but saying, hey, these are people who've been through some hard stuff. They're self-selected as leaders. They have great core values, and, and, and they're up for a challenge, and they can do really big things. I think that was our core belief, uh, and that's been a tough message to communicate to the civilian population sometime, especially when you've got um, you know, narratives in the media or you've got shootings or you've got a disconnected population. But overall, you know, we think over time you're going to see a generation of leaders who kick ass all across the board. Uh, and they're going to be running companies and maybe even cleaning up Washington and solving the biggest problems facing our world. Um, so that was, you know, the genesis at the outset. It's that core idea that we as a community can do great things if we look out to, for each other and we work together I think is, is really what's kept us on the right track and, and really makes me excited about the future, especially at a time when everybody's so divided. Uh, the political affiliations of our members are totally diverse. You know, the backgrounds are totally diverse, but we're all united as IAVA members and, and as veterans in the same way we were in the military. And I think our country needs that right now more than ever, especially when our politics are really ripping us in half. You listed a whole litany of things that you're up against as far as IAVA for veterans. Can you prioritize them as far as the biggest challenges and, and, you know, the top two or three? For sure. I think the number one challenge is just being forgotten. There's a lot of war fatigue in this country. Um, You know, politicians talk a good game, um, but you'll see that very little gets done, um, whether it's VA reform or or a real national focus on, on the suicide rate. You know, we're doing a great job as veterans. We've got allies and partners. Um, but, you know, next time you hear a politician or, you know, any kind of a, of a, of a speech, you know, veterans are often a throwaway. Um, and even that throwaway is less frequent than it was five or, or 10 years ago. So the number one thing we got to do is fight for space. We got to make sure people don't forget that we're still a country at war, that we're losing brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, Iraq and, and, and Somalia, and to make sure people stay connected to that. I think that is our biggest and most important challenge. Uh, everything else flows out of that. Um, the number one priority for us this year um, was uh, and is uh, recognizing and supporting women vets. We got a GI Bill done. We've made progress on unemployment. We've tackled suicide. And, and, and this is the right time for us to recognize that, um, you know, 20% of our membership is female, 35% of our leadership, uh, 85% of them feel like they are not recognized and supported by this country. So this is just not about just women. This is about the whole community banding together to make real change uh, for women veterans. Uh, And that's in the form of VA reform, uh, proactive services, even just public awareness, recognizing that not every veteran coming home looks like me. Um, It could be a mother of two that's going to be celebrating Mother's Day, you know, this month, and then Memorial Day soon afterwards. So that's very important. And then lastly, defending the GI Bill. GI Bill has been a tremendous bang for the buck. Everybody knows how amazing it's been. Over a million men and women have used it. Uh, since we helped pass it back in 2008, we got to protect it. Congress wants to save money. Uh, they're looking for ways to, to, to square the circle on some finances, and they need to know that the GI Bill is off limits. Um, it's a cost of war, and just like you know, you don't ask us to pay for our beans and bullets when we go to war, you shouldn't ask us for education or health care when we come home. It's just part of the deal. Uh, and that's why you know, back in 2008, uh, the GI Bill was really considered – uh, part of the defense budget. It was considered part of the, the national defense um, authorization. It, it's, it's run by the VA, and that's where the funding is, but we considered it a cost of war. And I think we've got to recognize that as long as we're at war, uh, we need a good GI Bill. It's not just about social services or upward mobility. It's also about recruiting. Uh, if you want to charge a private 100 bucks a month to use his GI Bill, 
you know, he might not want to do that. You know, that's going to deter him from joining the military or maybe accessing his education if he's only making, you know, $19,000 a year. So that's recently what somebody tried to propose is charging enlisted people 100 bucks a month for two years to opt into the GI Bill. It's really petty. Uh, it's stupid. It's counterproductive. And we in the VFW and others push back hard. If folks are listening, you can check the hashtag, hashtag defend the GI Bill. Um, but in a time of fiscal tightness, when everybody in Washington is complaining somehow that they don't have enough money, uh, we need to make sure that we hold the line and protect our GI Bill. How much of a struggle has it been, because we're in such a politically charged environment, to not get sucked into that? Because I, 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 I can feel like from the perception from the outside that IAVA almost may seem like to the average civilian a lobby group, just, you know, like, like the rest of them are. Well, I mean, we, we're not, we, A, we're an advocacy group, which is different, right? Like, we're right. not paid hired guns that roam around Washington in suits um, that, you know, push for agriculture one day and oil another, right? These, the people who work on Capitol Hill with and for IVA are veterans themselves uh, or their family members. So they're, they're up there speaking on behalf of themselves and on behalf of our membership that has a regular job or is going to school. Um, I think we're unique because we represent a population that doesn't have a voice. You know, the military doesn't have a union. They don't have a lobby group. You know, the private sitting in Afghanistan who doesn't want his GI Bill cut, you know, is limited in his ability to be vocal um, publicly, right? And, and so I think IOVA is absolutely essential in the same way uh, veterans groups have been essential since the revolution. I mean, this is not a new idea. You know, George Washington was essentially our first veterans activist. He came home and said, when you assume the soldier, you don't lay aside the citizen. So I think we're absolutely vital. I think our partners are, are absolutely vital. And we also get stuff done. Uh, I mean, every year for the last 13 years, we've been able to work in a bipartisan way to get stuff done, in part because Republicans and Democrats listen to us, they trust us, they respect our members. Sometimes they fear them politically because they know they're powerful and they vote. Um, but ultimately, we can be a bridge uh, to actually get stuff done in a time where it seems like nothing can get done. So uh, I think our, our work is absolutely vital, and it's going to be even more vital in, in the years ahead. And, and the only reason I ask that question is because uh, kind of what you said before, how there's a lot of civilian groups out there that don't understand the veterans and what they've done throughout their military career. I find, at least, and people I talk to, that's the biggest challenge, is how do I show somebody who works for company X or company Y, that the basic infantryman is a fit for your company, even though the skills yeah. necessarily don't translate. I find to me, and again, among the other bigger issues that you're facing, I think if you talk to most vets and most of them who are looking for a job and want to transition into the civilian world after serving their country, that seems to be one of the biggest challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And they're on the front lines, right? I mean, that's you know part of what I think has led us to be successful is those grassroots um, you know, citizens, people who are in Atlanta or Alabama or Texas, wherever you are, you know, if you're facing, you know, for example, a hostile work environment because somebody doesn't want to hire you because you're a National Guardsman because you might get deployed to Syria, that's a problem. And and your experience can fuel our work and, and our work can help, you know, provide you the cover or the ammunition, the support you need uh, to deal with that situation, whether it's, you know, informing you about USERA laws and, and what the laws are if you're facing an employer, 
or just networking you with other vets who are looking to highlight a vet. So I think it's a really important synergy from the grassroots to the national level and also uniting veterans across the country so that the guy in Texas can coordinate with the guy in Maine to share stories and be stronger together. Uh, the employment, you know, uh, DCHAT is, is very important. I think we made tremendous progress. The unemployment numbers for post-911 vets have moved in a really good direction, and right now uh, they're at some of the lowest levels that we've seen. Uh, and that's been a national effort from everybody. And I think we've kind of increased the, the, the awareness and, and made people understand the value of a better business standpoint. But we still got a long way to go. And ultimately, it's going to be that Joe or Jane, you know, walking into the office and making a positive impression and getting your foothold into that company is going to make the best case for us. And then when you get in there, you know, you're going to hire three or four more vets that you know can get the job done. So it's generally a slow evolution, but if you look at, you know, companies all across this country that were built by veterans, if you look at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, right, or if you look at FedEx, I mean, all across this country, there are examples of iconic companies that were built by veterans, um, but they didn't always talk about it, especially during Vietnam when veterans weren't always as well received. Now, I think we're going through this renaissance where people would better understand and appreciate uh, the value of a veteran on the ground, in a business, getting stuff done. Um, and no matter what kind of business you're in, you need tough people who can handle change. And, and I think that's one of the most defining features of, of our generation, especially. One thing I've noticed since I've been doing this podcast, because I've been in touch with numerous different veterans groups, and you guys are one of the bigger ones out there, if not the biggest that everybody knows, because of the stage that you're on and what you've been able to accomplish. But I, I wonder what your thoughts are on some of these other veterans groups that are out there, whether they're charities or everything else. It, to me, it seems like we're all kind of fighting for the same piece of the pie. And in reality, if we all got together and got into one big veterans group, like yours or another one out there, that we'd be much better off. Do, do you get a sense that there's some cannibalism going on with veterans organizations? I, I think there is, but I also think that's probably natural in every space, right? Like you can make the same argument about car companies or about cancer organizations. I mean, some of it is, I think, the natural evolution of a space, right? And, and especially a new space, because what you've seen post 9-11 is a total resurgence of veterans groups. There weren't, a lot of these didn't exist, right? Because people assumed that the government had it covered or there wasn't a generation of need. We haven't seen a generation of need or opportunity like we've seen now really since, you know, Vietnam. So it's been a generation since there's been a disruption in the space. I think you've got some bigger players and smaller players. I think at least at IAVA, we try to be a convener. Uh, we try to unite as much as we can. Uh, we try to help also provide information on the landscape. We're actually not that big in, in terms of our operating budget. We're pretty small. We're like a fraction of the size of the VFW or the American Legion or the Wounded Warrior Project. Um, you know, we're, we're definitely on a different level in, in terms of budget, but we do have a huge membership. We've got great social media presence. We've got motivated people. So I think we're able to punch above our weight class, especially because we know how to leverage the Internet and the media in a way that um, I think enhances our voice. But we've always been about unity um, and, and try to prevent redundancies as well, like, if you look at Team Rubicon or you look at Team Red, White, and Blue, um, so many groups out there that are good at what they do. You know, we don't want to be in the disaster business. Team Rubicon and Jake, they got that locked down. So we often make sure that we're trying to leverage each other's strengths and, and not be redundant. So I think, especially at the higher levels of the younger uh, generation of groups, there is a lot of coordination and there's definitely a lot of information sharing. And even more so with the older groups now, IVA is a part of what's called the Military Coalition. 
which includes most of the legacy veterans groups, about 50 of them. We're the first one really to be accepted since Vietnam. But that's, you know, groups like the VVA um, and, and the Paralyzed Veterans of America and so many others. And we meet just about weekly uh, to coordinate on policy to try to share information and to try to stick together. Uh, and I think in the last couple of years in Washington, especially, you've seen a lot of groups sticking together on most things. And, and when we're together, we can pack a punch. I think you're right at the local level. There's a, it's messy. Um, there are a lot of startup groups. There are a lot of successful groups. And I think the bigger issue uh, beyond just trying to force consolidation is that you've got increased demand and decreased supply, meaning you've got more vets who are coming home who need support, especially from a public health standpoint. If you think about 22 million veterans of all generations, you throw in their families, you're talking about a big chunk of people. And you really have seen a drop in philanthropy, in, in individual donations, even in corporate donations. I recommend everybody read Phil Carter's work. At CNES, you, you wrote a great report called The Sea of Goodwill. It really lays out the landscape because it feels like there's a lot of money flying around. You see a lot of splashy stuff. You see a lot of corporate involvement. And there is a significant amount of money flying around, but it's not matching up with the need. If you look at cancer, if you look at any other kind of health issue, even workforce development, the scale of, of need and opportunity versus the amount of money that's actually going into veteran stuff, is not matching up. I think that's the bigger challenge. So we don't have to have veterans groups fighting over a small piece of the pie. We have to actually grow the pie. Uh, and I think part of that is also trying to figure out how to better leverage the massive amounts of money that are going to the VA and DOD. Uh, if we can peel off a small percentage of the $180 billion at, at VA, that can seed you know, thousands of groups nationwide. So we hope that the new administration will be more creative in public-private partnership and just getting the ammunition down to the folks who are doing good work. There are some bad groups out there, but most folks are trying. Uh, and, and, and if they're not doing good work, usually the veterans will walk with their feet and they'll just, they just won't go to the program and the program will die and they'll go somewhere else. And that's probably healthy. Um, but I, I've been you know, discouraged at times, but overall I'm, I'm excited about how many groups have risen to the challenge and if I had a priority for the country, you know, all these billionaires out there, I think they're not investing enough in veterans. If they look across their charity portfolio, veterans usually doesn't come up. And if we can move that needle by a couple percentages for guys like Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, who have not really invested in, in, in veterans' uh, support, I think that can be a game changer for the entire space. It's kind of like increasing the defense budget. And you've got to recognize that in war footing, you've got to increase the defense budget. And right now, you know, we're facing an unprecedented level of need on the home front, and we haven't gotten that kind of increase to the defense budget that would support all these groups. So long, long-winded answer, but I think it's a really complicated situation. And at the end of the day, I just want more Americans, and especially more philanthropists, to focus on veterans, because it's going to be a good investment uh, in the community, international defense, and everything that, that folks care about. Bigger problem for veterans, what goes on in Washington or the fact that, you know, sometimes they themselves cause self-inflicted wounds in transition and things of that nature? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of a false choice. I mean, you know, everybody's got individual responsibility, right? you got to own your stuff and, and try to tackle it. But I think if you look overall at, at what's happened in Washington, I think it's been, you know, basically a dereliction of duty. I mean, if you look right. at the VA in particular. In the Obama administration, only one cabinet-level secretary in all eight years resigned in scandal, and it was the VA secretary, Shinseki. Mm -hmm. That was unacceptable, right? Regardless of your politics, the facts are he's the only guy that resigned in scandal for the entire eight years. 
that I think underscores that our country is not focused. Our leadership hasn't been focused. And, you know, at the same time, we're losing 20 vets a day to suicide. So the stakes are high. And, and I think the magnitude of what can move in Washington, just in terms of the bully pulpit from the president uh, and the money, right? I mean, the scope and scale of VA and DOD are so enormous um, that small percentages can trickle down and make, you know, tremendous impacts on, on programs. So, you know, I see some folks who are struggling and more often. I see folks in need who can't get help. Um, and, and some folks that are, you know, special force operators who are high-speed individuals who can't get into mental health care or are having financial problems. This is, this is a health care challenge. And if you look at it in that way or as a public health opportunity, um, it's a different construct. But I think it's really important from a leadership standpoint. When you see the president and, you know, the world's leading business and philanthropic leaders tackling veteran stuff, when you see them all convening at the White House, to talk about how they're going to tackle veteran suicide, then we know we're moving in the right. But until then, I think there's a disconnect. Well, Paul, first, I thank you for your service uh, to our country, but I thank you more for what you're doing now. Uh, I'm not a veteran yet. I'm still serving, but one day I technically will be. And I know the efforts that you're doing right now will not only help me, but my family and the, the hundreds of thousands of veterans across this country who desperately need the attention that you have worked so hard to get them. And uh, I think it's important to note in everything that you're doing, there's not a veteran out there who's looking for a handout. Like none of us are sitting right. there going with our hands going, oh, someone help me. I can't do anything on my own. Like, I don't think that, that there are any large portion of veterans who feel that way. I just think that we need a little help in connecting the dots from the military world to the civilian world. And I think we need the right people in the right places to help us do that and fight for the things that, as you said, give us a voice that we don't really have. And I think IAVA is certainly one of the biggest players in doing that. And, and I can't thank you enough for all the time, energy, and dedication you've put into it uh, on, on behalf of veterans everywhere. I mean, obviously, I'm only just one guy, but I think you know what I'm driving at. And I, I know I that you hear it, man. I appreciate that. But I mean, it's a team effort, right? It's a team game. And just like in the military, we got to work together to get it done. And, you know, you're doing your part by telling these stories and, and celebrating our community helping us bridge the civil military divide. I think, you know, if everybody does something, we can do, you know, really, really big things together. And, and, you know, I'm excited about how many projects like yours I see getting off the ground that are helping span that, that space, uh, especially as we go into Memorial Day and we go into July 4th. That's a great time for us to capture the attention of folks who aren't tracking on these issues. But at the end of the day, you know, some folks look at us as the problem. I think we're the solution. And, and I think that means, you know, millions of us around the country, and they're starting to rise up and do great things more and more. And, and that's why we often use the hashtag Vets Rising. You know, we're not a charity. We're an investment. We're about the future. Uh, and, and your show is a great example. So I'm excited to see what you got coming up in the next couple of months. And, and we'll spread the word and want to thank you for the time and, and your audience for the attention. No problem. Again, IAVA.org is where you go to sign up, and you can follow Paul on Twitter, at Paul Reichhoff, and uh, contact him there. He's, he's a very active Twitter guy, so uh, I'm, I'm sure it, once you get the time, you'll, you'll respond back to any vet who needs your help. Paul Reichhoff, thank you and so much. We're both Giants fans, so you and yes, I can always we... <laughs> you know, pontificate about our, our mighty New York Giants, too, and football and all the other elements that are happening outside of the vet space. Where vets are doing amazing stuff, too, man. You had you know Nate on a couple of weeks ago. If you look all across it, I mean, even in places like the NFL, you know, vets are making a huge impact, and I think that's exciting. Absolutely. Paul Rykoff, thank you so much for your time, man. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it very much. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell, 
and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.